It's Minnesota Now. I'm Kathy Worzer. Legislation in the state House and Senate would allow a terminally ill patient to make to take medication to end their life. How does this change the options for patients and their caregivers? 160 years ago this week, the U.S. government nullified its treaties with the Dakota people. We hear how Dakota's sacred spaces and landmarks are well remembered by many today. The case of a diabetic Minnesotan shines a light on the loose regulations surrounding THC edibles. Reporter Tom Sheck investigates what's being done. We'll continue our series, Thank You Stranger, all about small acts of kindness that have a big impact on the people they help. Today, a young man bums a ride that changes his life. We'll get all the sports news you need from our resident sports experts, Wally Langfellow and Eric Nelson. We have the Minnesota Music Minute and the Song of the Day, and all of that comes your way right after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Emergency crews in Greece say they are making progress centimeter by centimeter as they work to reach victims in the mangled remains of Tuesday's head-on train crash. The death toll rising to 57, police say. Lydia Emanuelidou reports from Athens it's been difficult to not only reach but also to identify the victims. Temperatures reached more than 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and so it's really hard to identify them. And so family members have been going from hospital to hospital. Some are going to the collision site. Of course, they're very desperate to, to find their loved ones. Dozens of people remain hospitalized. Greece's prime minister suggests human error is to blame, but rail workers are pointing to staff shortages and old equipment, and they have gone on strike in protest. A Pennsylvania man is expected in federal court this hour to face accusations he concealed an explosive device in his suitcase at Lehigh Valley International Airport. From member station WLVR, Brad Klein reports. TSA agents allegedly found the device with a fuse and powder consistent with a commercial-grade firework. They said it was hidden in the lining of a bag that was checked for a flight from Allentown. Prosecutors identified the man as 40-year-old Mark Muffley of Lansford, Pennsylvania. The bag never made it onto the plane, but authorities say Muffley checked the bag Monday morning for an Allegiant flight headed to Orlando Sanford International Airport in Florida. They say Muffley was paged over the intercom. He left the airport shortly afterward and never boarded the flight. He was arrested Monday night at his home. For NPR News, I'm Brad Klein. President Biden is set to make a stop on Capitol Hill this hour for a speech to the Democratic caucus. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says congressional Democrats will use today's meeting with President Biden to develop a messaging strategy moving forward. If the last two years focused on getting our agenda passed into law, one of the focuses of our lunch will be on how the next two years will be about implementing that agenda. Legislation must and will continue. In a divided Congress, the Biden administration and congressional Democrats have a slim chance of moving ahead with big-ticket items on their agenda. The two parties are also up against a deadline to resolve their differences over whether to raise the nation's debt ceiling. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Staggering snowfall up to seven feet in mountainous parts of California from back-to-back winter storms has stranded residents. Authorities say it could be up to a week before they can be reached. The California National Guard is helping in search and rescue operations. There are reports of roofs collapsing under the weight of the snow and more snow in the forecast for this weekend. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. 
Other contributors include Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. Around Minnesota right now, skies are partly to mostly cloudy. It's pretty quiet. Highs today, mid-20s to the lower 30s. At noon in Rochester, it's cloudy and 24. It's sunny in Hibbing, where it's 19. And outside Mills, Lanes, and Lucky Strike Grill in New York Mills, Minnesota, it's sunny and 20. I'm Kathy Warzer with Minnesota News Headlines. On the heels of Target and other big retailers, Best Buy today also announced significant revenue declines for its holiday quarter and the past fiscal year. Tim Nelson has more. Richfield-based Best Buy says that its fourth quarter core revenue and sales were down 10% compared to the previous year, saying that computing, home theater, appliance, and mobile phone sales slumped, although growth in gaming and tablet sales made up some of that decrease. The company said that online sales revenue was down by 13%, and its share of the company's overall sales slipped by a percentage point to 38%. CEO Corey Berry said revenue and profitability were in line with expectations. But the retailer also cautioned investors that the year ahead will remain a challenge. The company's CFO said Best Buy expects a 3 to 6 percent decline in sales in the coming fiscal year as economic headwinds continue to affect discretionary spending, including consumer electronics. I'm Tim Nelson. Minnesotans could soon have a civil recourse if they're portrayed in lewd or manipulated images and videos that are fake. They're known as deep fakes. They've been made easier through digital editing technology and quickly spread on social media. A bill moving at the Capitol would let people pursue damages, including any profits from dissemination of false material. New criminal penalties are also proposed. There's a news conference this afternoon at the state capitol where several Minnesotans with life-limiting illnesses, their supporters, and several DFL lawmakers will outline measures that would legalize medical aid in dying. Now, you may have heard it described as death with dignity or even physician-assisted suicide. The medical aid in dying bill, called the Minnesota End-of-Life Option Act, would allow terminally ill adults 18 years of age or older with less than six months to live to get drugs from their doctor to help them end their life. If it passes, Minnesota would join 10 other states plus Washington, D.C. in medical aid in dying, where that is legal. DFL Representative Mike Freiberg is the lead author of the House version of the bill. Krista Dorgan is with us. She's a marriage and family therapist who lives in Afton. She was diagnosed in 2019 with multiple myeloma. That's a rare, incurable type of blood cancer. Representative and Krista Dorgan, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for uh, being here. Representative Freiberg, I'm going to start with you. You've said this bill is modeled after the Oregon law. Can you briefly explain to folks what it would do? Sure. Um, So this bill to me is about bodily autonomy and the freedom to make one's own personal medical decisions. Um, Yeah. So the Oregon law has been in place for over two decades. Um, If a person meets the requirements of the, of the bill, and I'll say what those are in a second, then, uh, they can be prescribed a medication by a doctor uh, that they would use that they have to self-administer um, to ultimately end their life. So to qualify for it, however, they have to be 18 or older. They have to have a terminal condition, uh, terminal disease or condition that has a six-month prognosis or less. They have to be capable of making their own medical decisions, be capable of giving informed consent, 
and be acting of their own free will. Um, so if they have dementia or other cognitive disorders, they wouldn't qualify. Um, and they have to be able to ingest the med- medication. As I said, delivery by injection or infusion is not permitted. Um, so that's essentially what I did. I, you, know, you know what the bill would do. Um, two clinicians um, have to receive an independent request for medical aid in dying. They have to evaluate the patient, and they have to agree that the patient qualifies if they have any okay. concern a mental health evaluation is requested. Okay. Krista, you have an incurable cancer, as I mentioned. What does your future look like? Well, right now things are pretty good. I'm stable. I um, was on treatment for close to a year and a half and then took a break. I was actually on two different treatments and due to side effects, I took a break and my cancer level in my body remained stable until about four months ago. Now it's increasing again. So I'm meeting at Mayo and looking at starting up treatment again. Um, my initial, at initial diagnosis, uh, the Mayo oncologist said, some people live two years with this disease and some people have lived 20. So there's really no way of knowing until you live it kind of which direction you're going to go. I've been very fortunate to have this break from treatment, but I'm going to start again soon. And hopefully I will have years um, of being able to, to be around and have good quality of life. And um, you know, that's what we're aiming for, but nobody knows for sure what's going to happen with, uh, multiple myeloma. I know you've experienced terminal illness from the point of view of being a caretaker. I know your dad died and you were with him. How does that influence how you see this issue? Well, I, during the final days of my dad's life, granted this was 30 years ago, we had hospice care and home, but it is kind of burned into my memory, sort of like a nightmare experience, because he was he was having a lot of pain. Um, he had cancer that had spread to his brain and his other organs. So as his body was shutting down, um, he they were trying to give him oral morphine, and he was very nauseous. And so it was he was vomiting it up, and I was the one sitting with him um, in that last day, and he was you know literally crying out in pain all day long. It was it was a really hard experience to go through. And with that, that is kind of the image I have of, you know, my experience of seeing someone dying. Now I know there's, you know, I work with an end of life doula and I've gone through a lot of kind of therapy over the last three year, few years and know that in many cases it can be very peaceful and there's good pain management. But in the few cases that there is not, I am for having that option for people. Um, And I think even for myself, one of the greatest fears is, is there something coming up physically that I'm not going to be able to handle? And it gets in the way of of just relaxing and living with the life that we have. And so to know that that was an option, even if I'm not quite sure myself, I would end up utilizing it because it's a very personal choice for everybody with spiritual and ethical and moral um, implications. Um, to know that it's there would allow me to relax and feel like I kind of have a safety net as I mm-hmm. go on and, and live with the life that I have. Uh, Representative, you mentioned that for you, this is an issue of bodily autonomy. But, you know, medical aid in dying isn't a completely autonomous act. It requires the help of another person who took an oath to do no harm, which means not hastening the death of his or her patient. And there are serious ethical concerns with this measure. How are they addressed in this bill? 
Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the experience, you know, as I said, this is modeled after the Oregon law, which has been in place for over 20 years. And the experience there shows that, you know, it's not it's not a, it's not abused. People have to self ingest the medication. Um, and it, it, there are many doctors who support it. The chief author of the bill in the Senate, uh, Senator Kelly Morrison, is a doctor herself. You know, the Minnesota Medical Association used to have a position opposed to it. Now they have one of neutrality. Certainly there are doctors who are opposed to this practice and they will not be required to participate under the bill. I mean, Krista, I couldn't have put it better than Krista did. I mean, uh, you know, just it's it's about people having this option. It's the end of life option act. You know, they're not required to use it. It may give some people peace of mind. Other people may see um, peacefulness and dignity and not using this. And that is their choice. I think this is an area where the government shouldn't put artificial barriers in place. Mm. There are terminally ill patients, of course, already have the right to die. They can refuse treatment. Patients can voluntarily stop eating and drinking. I mean, there are other ways to make an exit from this world beyond legislating this option. Um, why, for people who are just still not quite understanding, why move to enshrine medical death under law? Well, uh, I mean, not eating or drinking is a long and, you know, and drawn out process. And there may be people in the condition exactly like what Krista was describing with her father, who, you know, don't want to go through that difficult process. If they do, that's fine. That is their prerogative. And the bill would not stand in their way from doing it at all. If they have moral objections, they don't have to participate. But this is an option for people who, you know, who don't want to live that way at the end of their at the end of their life and want the peace of mind that Krista described that this could provide. There, of course, is a slippery slope argument that some use. Will this lead, do you think, to sanctioned euthanasia? Uh, no, I don't. I, I don't believe it will. Uh, you know, this has been in place in Oregon for over 20 years. Um, there's a very narrow. I mean, the list of people who you know who do take advantage of it have a very. It's been a limited. Uh, it's mostly ALS and certain types of cancer. I think that the vast majority of people who use this option take advantage of it hasn't been expanded in any way. Um, I have had requests from people, for example, with Alzheimer's who want to be able to say in advance that they should be able to take advantage of this, but I don't see a way to um, have the same protections in place. So the bill does not do that. I mean, I think there are people who think the bill is under-inclusive, but we, we want to be very precise in the language and follow the example that's been set in Oregon and the 10 other states you mentioned and just make sure that um, this is a very narrow category of people able to take this option. So uh, the slippery slope argument has not come to pass in the states that have this option. Krista, as you know, there's a prevalence of depression in the chronically and terminally ill. Um, because you work in the field, should there be some kind of um, provision where an individual should get counseling from a, a mental health professional before taking this action? My opinion is 100%, I think, that should be a component of it. I know as the bill is written now, it is um, it, my understanding that if the the medical professional thinks that there is a need for that. They will. They have the obligation to refer to a licensed mental health professional. But you know, I've had plenty of people in my own office who have been struggling with you know extreme suicidal thoughts. And if there was some sort of legal, kind of socially acceptable, sanctioned way for them to leave the planet, you know, I have people that I think would have probably taken that option. And I know for a fact, some of those people are thriving today. So and when you mix depression with chronic pain, there is, um, you know, the 
phenomenon of things getting magnified and you know the, the depression piece i think it'd be important to sort out what is the depression piece what is the actual unbearable physical pain piece and um so that's in my opinion i think that that could be kind of a, a tricky thing to sort out but i think having a team of people coming in and working with this person and then doctors who know the history of the person would be very important um to have this bill go through Mm-hmm. Representative, why not have a requirement in the bill that anyone receiving the medication has to talk with a mental health provider first? Uh, I just pulled up the bill language. There is a requirement that says the attending provider shall, uh, there's multiple things the, that the attending provider has to do, but one of them is specifically refer the individual to a licensed mental health provider if the attending provider observes signs that the individual may not be capable of making an informed decision. So it's, it's already in there. And will docs will doctors get mandatory training to prescribe the medications? They they have training right now to prescribe opioids and other pain management drugs. Would they get training to prescribe life ending medication? I assume it would. Um, I I I don't know if the bill requires it, but I, I assume it would fall under their general requirement to um, know, to be familiar with how any medication is dispensed. And there have been versions of this bill in the past that have been introduced. They've not gone anywhere. Do you think it'll have success this session? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. I mean, you know, it shouldn't be a partisan issue. As I said, it's about bodily autonomy. But I do think the fact um, that the uh, that the Democrats, you know, unfortunately, it, it tends to be more supported among Democrats and supported less among Republicans. And I think just given the fact that the Democrats are in control of the House and Senate improves the chances. Uh, certainly nothing is guaranteed um, in this in the legislative process. But we, we did, you know, I don't know that it's accurate to say it went nowhere. We did have a hearing on it a few years ago, and I'm certainly hopeful that we will have one again this year. All right. Representative, thank you very much. We've been talking to Representative Mike Freiberg. Krista Dorgan, really thank you. I'm so grateful for your time today, too, and best of luck to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Krista Dorgans, with, uh, she is from Afton, Minnesota. We've been talking about the medical aid in dying bills that are just introduced in the Minnesota legislature. Representative Freiberg and other advocates of these proposals are holding a news conference at 1 o'clock this afternoon. And for more news on what's happening at the legislature right now, of course, you can always tune in noon tomorrow. We're going to start Politics Friday again with host Mike Mulcahy. It's our Minnesota Music Minute, and this is the song Fill Into Me by Minneapolis-based singer-songwriter Anju. She says music is her medicine and her sanctuary. You can find more of her music on Bandcamp.
This week marks a painful event in U.S. and Dakota history. 160 years ago tomorrow, the U.S. Congress passed the Dakota Removal Act. It led to the exile and killing of many Dakota people who were the original inhabitants of this land. As part of the effort, the U.S. annulled its treaties with the Dakota. If you look at a map of Minnesota today, this story is right there. Our next guest is redrawing that map. Marlena Miles is a Spirit Lake Dakota member and the artist behind the Dakota Land Maps Project. She's with us. Marlena, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I am wondering if when you re- if you remember when you learned about the U.S. nullifying the treaties and the exiling of the Dakota people from your homeland. Do you, do you recall when you first heard that what you what you thought of? Um, I mean, I my mom was born in, on her reservation in North Dakota, and I grew up here in Minneapolis, and we'd always go back to North Dakota, and you know, I'd ask why. Are we in North Dakota? Why are we not in Minnesota? Why is our reservation there? And um, she mentioned that we were exiled from Minnesota. And she said, you know, you're kind of young and I don't want to tell you the full sad story, I guess, you know. So I was aware that we're originally from Minnesota um, just through her storytelling. I heard one Dakota elder call this a disruption to Dakota culture, but not its elimination. What do you want folks to understand about that? Well, I mean, prior to 1851, when the Treaty of Traverse des Sioux was signed, which gave away um, 40% of Minnesota, the southeastern part, um, to the United States government, um, prior to that, Europeans, they strove to understand Dakota people. They would sort of be adopted in or married into our society and see the world from our perspective and you know, some people think that era ended when the treaties were signed and people started to acquire land that used to belong to us. But I think that, you know, the past and the present are intertwined and that the future is still influenced by such events, but that it doesn't end, that we can reconnect um, and sort of immerse ourselves through a Dakota view And so that's why I started to create the Dakota land maps to sort of open that um, big picture to people who, you know, always might not have known anything about Dakota history and they never knew the lands that they lived on belonged to us. And, you know, they might not even know what the word Minnesota means, but they grew up here their whole lives. So these land maps sort of are an introduction to our respect-based worldview of the land. You have three Dakota land maps. These are these are watercolor maps that show landmarks and sacred sites that were part of Dakota life. Um, you have one map for the Twin Cities, one for the Minnesota River Valley, one for the Prairie Island area. Walk us through the process of creating each map, if you would. Um, the process starts with um, looking at historical maps and collecting data um, about the Dakota names and also looking at the current um landmarks that are there and sort of telling these stories of being intertwined that our history isn't in the past it's also exists in the present and also creating little icons that let people sort of get a hint of what these um, names might be you know on my website there's the audio guide and audio pronunciation of each Dakota word but I wanted to create the land maps icons in a way that if you didn't know English or if you didn't know Dakota, maybe you could look at these icons and they would give you a hint of the name even. Uh, 
the Twin Cities map includes an image of uh, light rail. You've got the Mall of America in there, both skylines. So I'm curious as to why you decided to include those landmarks as well as the important sites, the important sites like Bedote and uh, Bede Makaska. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Minneapolis. I grew up at Little Earth, which is like an urban Native American community. And I attended a Native magnet school called Four Winds. And outside of those areas, I never really saw anything that showed that Minneapolis or Minnesota was Dakota homelands, um, just from like a public art or a public building perspective. And so creating these maps and incorporating, you know, these modern things into a Dakota worldview, I think that allows, you know, maybe a Dakota kid growing up in the cities to see that everything around us can be part of our culture and that we have the words to describe these things. So I felt it was important to connect the present and the past so that, you know, our sacred sites are still here, but, you know, everyone can look, we see the light rail and that can have a meaning in our culture too. Mm-hmm. There's an augmented reality piece to, piece to your maps. And I know you're working on fleshing that out. How does that work? Um, I started with the Dakota Spirit Walk, which is in St. Paul at the Bruce Vento Nature Sanctuary. And people use their phone and go to the site and this art is activated through augmented reality and they can sort of see the storytelling, they can hear the language, they can meet the spirits and sort of understand our culture through my eyes, actually using their phones. Um, Mm -hmm. Before Europeans arrived, we didn't have a written language and so we used the land to store our language, sort of our stories, our data and our knowledge. So I wanna reintroduce land-based education and our phones are fully capable of helping us you know, do that. Mm-hmm. Are you planning to make more maps? Yeah, I do. You know, the Dakota ham- homelands are pretty far in South Dakota, North Dakota, Nebraska, even Canada. Um, so I want to just keep expanding my maps as I go along and as I grow as an artist, too. You know, I mentioned uh, at the beginning in my introduction that this week is the anniversary of that really grim moment in Dakota history. Um, does art help you face stories like the Dakota Removal Act? It does because it allows me to show that we have a much longer history than this short time period of these tragic events that have happened. And I want, you know, people to see our culture as a positive thing, as a source of power, as a source of strength, a source of knowledge. Um, because I do think a lot of times we're only talked about in these sort of tragic things. And I think the art I share or create um, allows people to sort of see that in perspective of who we are as a people that we are here. We were here long before the United States existed. By the way, before you go, I know you're a self-taught artist. How did you become interested in art and technology? Um, Growing up, my grandma would always send us art supplies and my mom and aunts and grandma, they all did beadwork. And so Um, You know, we were always encouraged to do what we wanted to do um, with art. And I guess I got a computer in like 1998 or something before it was like really socially acceptable to sit on a computer all day. Um, And so I just I was really nerdy. I just got into coding, making websites. And uh, I kind of grew up in a bad neighborhood. So it kind of kept me indoors and active and busy, I think. All right. Marlena, thank you so very much for your time. And your art is beautiful. Thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks for having me.
We've been talking to digital artist Marlena Miles about her Dakota Land Maps project. You can find the maps, by the way, by visiting our website, mprnews.org. By the way, our arts programming is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Support comes from Hallen and Law, representing courageous whistleblowers who call out corporate fraud. Hallen and Law helps whistleblowers speak up, stand strong, and fight for what's right. Results that make a difference. H-A-L-U-N-E-N-Law.com. Time for news with John Wanamaker. John? Kathy, family members lined up to give DNA samples in hopes of identifying victims of a train crash that killed nearly 60 people in Greece. This as workers went on strike Thursday, saying the rail system is outdated, underfunded, and dangerous. The government has blamed human error, and a railway official was charged with manslaughter. Emergency crews continue searching for the dead from Tuesday night's head-on collision, Greece's deadliest ever. More than 48 people remain hospitalized, six in intensive care. Republican lawmakers have advanced a bill aimed at putting limits on drag shows in Kentucky. The committee action today sparked chants of shame from opponents. They criticized the measure as discriminatory and said it would stifle First Amendment rights. The measure would prohibit drag shows on public property or in places where the adult performances could be viewed by children. Violations would be punishable as misdemeanors for the first two offenses but would rise to a felony for subsequent offenses. The Environmental Protection Agency is expected to propose restrictions on harmful forever chemicals in drinking water after finding that they are dangerous in amounts so small as to be undetectable. Experts say removing them will cost billions, a burden that will be falling hardest on small communities with few resources. Concerned about the chemicals' ability to weaken children's immune system, the EPA said last year that PFAS chemicals could cause harm at levels, quote, much lower than previously understood. Wayne Shorter, a pioneering jazz composer and saxophone player, has died. He was 89. Shorter died Thursday in Los Angeles. That, according to the representative for the musician, no cause of death given. Shorter, a tenor saxophonist, made his debut in 1959 and would go on to be a foundational member of two of the most seminal jazz groups, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers and the Miles Davis Quintet. He also co-founded the 70s fusion band Weather Report while working with artists including Joni Mitchell, Carlos Santana, and Steely Dan. Shorter composed many modern jazz standards, including Speak No Evil, Black Nile, Footprints, and Nefertiti. This is NPR News. Thanks, John. It's 1230. A 70-year-old man is accusing a metro area tobacco store employee of giving him edibles laced with THC without his knowledge. Now, the action, which the store denies, has led to a flurry of complaints to police and state and federal authorities. As Tom Sheck reports, Minnesota's weak oversight system has created a regulatory hot potato. Antoine Arani has diabetes. On September 30th, he says he started experiencing low blood sugar. Since he was a regular customer at a northern Twin Cities tobacco shop, Arani, who is Lebanese, says he went into the store and asked for help. I told him, I need some sweet... My sugar blood, I think, is down. Arani says an employee gave him what he thought was candy. He gave me one piece. I took it. After he forced me to take another one, I took it right away. I ate it. Sweet sugar. After he said, take another one, I, I take it. Arani says what he thought were candies were actually THC edibles. He says the employee put a few more pieces into a clear plastic bag for later. But Arani was worried about his low blood sugar, so he took them all immediately after he left the store. He believes he took as many as seven edibles. He then went to eat dinner 
and became disoriented. After I start to remember where I am going, I lost my mind, where I am going, how I am going to go home. Arani got lost and eventually called his brother from his car. A family member called an ambulance, which took Arani to the emergency room. He's okay now, but he's still upset about the incident. He tricked me. I was asked for something. He gave me something. But I wasn't asked for this stuff. My clients simply sold what they were asked to sell. Morgan Smith is an attorney for the tobacco store. He disputes Arani's allegations and says Arani came into the store seeking out THC-laced edibles. They know this guy. He's a regular. He comes in frequently and buys products. Uh, The management asked all the staff. There was nothing about candy. NPR News isn't naming the store because it hasn't been sanctioned by state or federal authorities. But the dispute highlights the major issues with a law that has created confusion over how to regulate and enforce the sale of THC products in Minnesota. And Arani refuses to let the issue go. A few days after leaving the hospital, he met with police. Well, what can I help you with? Oh, my God. You want to stand or you want to sit? Here's body camera footage of Arani speaking with a member of the Anoka County Sheriff's Department. As Arani told his story, Sergeant Rick Cryer listened and took notes. At the end of the interview, Cryer told Arani he'd investigate, but warned against seeking sweets from a tobacco store. Well, I have to go to a different call, but I'll, I'll do a report on this. Um, and I'll, I'll stop by there and see if they know what it was that they gave you. Uh, and, and if I figure out what it was that they gave you, I'll let you know. But otherwise, don't do that again. Would be my I advice. Know, <laughs> officer, I know. Are you okay? But to, are you I okay? lost my, my brain. The police okay? report says an employee at the shop told police that Arani had a gummy of some sort, and it was likely that he received a CBD or hemp-based product. Police called the dispute a civil matter and closed the case. Arani also complained to Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison's office. That office cited confidentiality and declined comment when approached by NPR News. But Arani's friend, Dina Sonbol, provided paperwork showing Ellison's office closed the case. Sonbol, a professor at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law, says she also complained to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. She says the FDA told her the products are legal in Minnesota, so Arani's complaint should be handled by state authorities. It just feels like this was a really bad situation and there's no recourse. There's no criminal recourse. There's really no um, any sort of administrative recourse or any sort of oversight or accountability. Arani's complaint to the Minnesota Board of Pharmacy is also pending. Part of the problem is that Minnesota's regulations around THC-laced edibles and drinks are extremely loose. The bill legalizing THC products was hastily passed at the end of the 2022 legislative session. There's no licensing requirement to keep track of who's selling the products, and the pharmacy board was given oversight despite having little experience investigating complaints about cannabis products. Nobody really knows what you're getting when you go buy edibles in Minnesota these days. That's Jeff Potts with the Minnesota Chiefs of Police Association. He says many people have called Minnesota the Wild West of Edibles. Potts says police are having a hard time managing complaints. I think law enforcement does feel kind of hamstrung in their in their ability to do any kind of uh, regulatory oversight. Lawmakers who passed the edibles law last year say they were trying to put guardrails around a market that already existed. Former DFL House Majority Leader Ryan Winkler said a 2018 federal farm bill allowed for the sale of hemp, 
which opened the door for CBD and hemp-based products. Winkler now chairs a group lobbying to legalize recreational marijuana, and he insists the regulatory problems didn't get any worse after the law was passed because the products were already being sold. Step one was to create a legal compliant marketplace, and step two is to go ahead and clean up all the rest of the uh, mess that those uh, operators created with their interpretation of the farm bill. The pharmacy board is responsible for handling complaints until the so-called mess is cleaned up. There have been 56 THC-related complaints filed with the board since the law took effect in July. To date, the board declined to release any information about all but one of the complaints. One reason for the board's delay may be money. The legislature gave the board oversight authority, but no additional funding to fulfill its new responsibilities. At a December news conference, Executive Director Jill Phillips said the board is trying to manage all of its oversight roles. We do a lot of prioritizing and and, um, taking a look at what needs the most immediate attention. And um, again, we, we work as we work overtime, we work long hours, and we try to work quickly and, and effectively to make sure that the way that we're using our resources is, is going to be effective for us. Phillips made those comments on the day the state sued a Minnesota-based edibles manufacturer for allegedly selling products that exceeded the THC limits placed in Minnesota law. The retailer denies the allegations. The issue of oversight is even more critical as Governor Walls and the DFL-controlled legislature appear poised to legalize recreational marijuana. DFL Representative Zach Stevenson is the chief author of that bill. He says his goal is to create a centralized agency to oversee and regulate all cannabis-related products. We think that there should be one comprehensive system of regulation and taxation that treats all of these substances in a similar uh, fashion. So it should be uh, clear across the board. As for Arani's case, the pharmacy board hopes to release more details about its findings later this month. Sanbol says Arani isn't thinking about suing the store, but she says that may change depending on how the pharmacy board handles the case. For NPR News, I'm Tom Sheck. And there's more to this story on our website. Go to mprnews.org for that. Support comes from the EMILY program, reminding you during Eating Disorders Awareness Week that people of all ages, genders, and backgrounds can be affected by an eating disorder. If you or a loved one is struggling, find help at emilyprogram.com. Let me ask you something. Has someone ever taken you by surprise by doing something kind that made your day a little easier? Your life maybe a little fuller? Our new series, Thank You, Stranger, looks at those special people and their impact. Today, we'll hear from Parker Lindo, who was injured while hiking on the Superior Hiking Trail. He got some help that inspired him to pay it forward. NPR producer Ellen Finn talked with him. Parker was at a turning point in his life. He had just turned 30, he was at a job in the Twin Cities that wasn't working out, and he just wanted a reset. Really loved backpacking and I had planned on this big trip for like a whole year. The trip was a through hike up the Superior Hiking Trail. That's more than 300 miles of hiking. My whole life was in front of me and I just had a whole lot to think about. So 
I couldn't ask for a better way to just clear my head and plan for what's next. I was gearing up to finish a southbound through hike of the Superior Hiking Trail. And uh, at that point, I'd been hiking solo for about 230 miles and very close to my goal. It rained recently and the bugs were getting pretty bad on that section of trail that day. And like, my, I was so close to finishing and my head was just in the clouds. I was thinking about, you know, how awesome it'd be to finish and you know, reach that goal I was working towards. And I was just, I was just cruising. Suddenly Parker slipped and fell. I heard a couple of pops and unfortunately I just I sprained my ankle pretty bad. 230 miles of hiking alone. I only had like 36 miles to go. I was thinking like how I feel when I look back on this moment. Like, am I good? Should I push it or should I rest today? Parker needed help. His ankle hurt a lot, but no one was around and his phone didn't have service. Being alone really amplified that experience. He decided to try to look for help or at least find cell service. He started to walk south along the highway. Thankfully, a few miles in, I saw a family that was just enjoying the weather on the porch. I'm walking up and I'm like obviously been out for you know a few weeks at this point. Like I'm probably not looking very good. Parker decided it was time to shoot a shot. He told the family what had happened and asked if they had a phone he could borrow. The family sprung into action, and the father insisted that he drive Parker to his car, which was nearly 30 miles away. I was immensely grateful, not only for that favor, but just for the fact that people are out there that are willing to go out of their way to help someone just because they need it. The man that drove me, I, I offered him gas money, but he told me, you know, I, I'm not going to take your money. Just pay it forward to the next person you see that can use some help. So I started the drive home and I saw this northbound through hiker that I met briefly in passing a few days before. And uh, he was walking to two harbors off the trail to resupply. And it can take a really long time. It can burn a lot of daylight going to resupply. And it, it kind of sucks being the only like smelly hiker in a place. So that was my time to pay it forward. I was like, I'm going to stop and offer this guy a lift. And we spent hours in town just, you know, getting stuff he needed. And we even grabbed some food at Betty's Pies. So in the end, Parker didn't finish the hike. He had only 30 miles to go. But instead of feeling like a failure, he felt something else. 230 miles of hiking alone. And the greatest part of that whole journey was just a selfless act of kindness from someone. You know, helping another person made what could have felt like a failure to me feel like a tremendous achievement. I asked Parker what he'd say to the family that helped him if he saw them now. Your actions really inspired me to pay it forward. I'll never forget that day. And you and your family deserve the best. Just thank you for being there and doing what you did. I had to ask Parker one more question. Is he planning to ever finish that big hike? <laughs> I am going to finish what I wasn't able to do. I'm more of a, a mathlete than athlete, so that's, that was enough hiking for me for that time. But I am going to finish what I wasn't able to do. That was Parker Lindo in our latest episode of Thank You, Stranger, a series about people helping people in unexpected ways. To see a photograph of Parker out on a hike... 
go to our website, mprnews.org. And if you've got a story about someone unexpectedly helping you out, let us know. You can email us at minnesotanow at mpr.org. Or we have a storyline. You can call us 612-361-1252. Again, the storyline number 612-361-1252. That story, by the way, was produced by Ellen Finn and Melissa Townsend. Music is by St. Paul's own Dan Luke. Arts programming on NPR News is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Art and Cultural Heritage Fund. 1248 here on Minnesota Now. It's Thursday on the program. That means it's time for sports. We got our two favorite sports guys here to round up what's happening this week. Wally Langfellow is the creator of Minnesota Score magazine, the co-host of 10,000 Takes Sports Show on radio and TV. Eric Nelson's the other co-host of that show and the Vikings reporter for CBS Sports Eye on Football program. Hey guys, how are you? Good, Kathy. How are you? I am fine. Thank you for asking. Eric Nelson? Hey, Kathy. Great to be on, as always. As always. Let's start with Gopher Men's Basketball. Boy, that's oh, an boy. abysmal I know, an abysmal program here. What's going on, Wally? Well, not much good. Uh, you know, Ben Johnson took the program over last year, and basically he had an empty cupboard because everybody had left, transferred out of the program after the departure of Richard Patino. So uh, last year was not very good, and this year actually has been worse. It's been a historically bad year for the Gophers. Tonight they host Rutgers. Rutgers a pretty good team, 18-11 overall, 10-8 and in the conference. Minnesota has lost 12 straight games. They're 7 and 20. They're 1 and 16 in the Big mm-hmm. 10. Uh, and as you look at the record and you say, okay, it's a bad year, but things got even worse last Friday when their big recruit, this kid out of uh, Riverside, California, a five-star recruit, Dennis Evans, uh, said that he wants to be released from his commitment to the U of M. They are most likely to do that. He did sign a letter of intent, but uh, he says he wants to go elsewhere. That's a huge setback for Ben Johnson. And now, you know, in addition to recruiting kids out of high school, he's really going to have to look at the transfer portal, I think. Um, you know, kids, older kids, kids that are playing at other universities right now and, they, and they're wanting to transfer and find an opportunity someplace else. He's probably going to have to dig into that to get uh, some players to help turn this thing around because I know it's only been two years, but you're hearing the whispers um, you know, is Ben Johnson capable of turning the program around? And it's a wait and see, but it's going to be very difficult. I do think, though, he is going to have to get some players out of that transfer portal. Well, it's possible. It's not impossible. It's possible. It's kind of like free agency in, in professional sports. Hopefully he's able to mm-hmm. do that. And Eric, the Gopher women are also having their or have had their problems here this season, and they were knocked out of the Big Ten tournament. Eric, are you with me? Oh, it appears that we have lost Eric Nelson. Well, shoot. Well, I tell you what, um, Wally Langfellow, as we're trying, I know you can talk about the Gopher women as we get Eric back on the line here. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, So the Gophers went one and done in the Big Ten tournament yesterday at Target Center, uh, losing to Penn State. Now, the Target Center is the epicenter right now for Big Ten basketball. That's where the Big Ten tournament is this year. Um, And it really, as I said about the men, the women – having their struggles too. Lindsay Whalem, who was 
a Hall of Fame player. I mean, she's a great player for the Gophers, as we know, for the Lynx as well. She led the Gophers to Final Four. Um, but as a head coach, really has struggled. And the program in five years has not done what they are hoping. Okay. Um, she's 26 games below 500 in a, with her Big Ten record. Has not been to the NCAA tournament yet. So um, I think that it has been... Um, uh, definitely a struggle. She has some young players, including Mara Braun and others, that I think will um, hopefully they stay. You know, I talked about the transfer portal for the men. Yeah, yep. It, it happens. And as in a matter of fact, too. Okay. By the way, uh, Eric Nelson, you with us? I am, Kathy. And we're talking about Gopher women's basketball also struggling. Well, yeah, no doubt about it. It you know when Lindsey Whalen was hired by Mark Coyle back in 2018. It was a splash hire. It garnered a lot of attention, and the Gophers were packing the barn that first year. But since then, and, and Wally's laid a lot of this out, the Gophers have never made the NCAA tournament. Their Big Ten record is horrible. They were in 12th place this season. Uh, and then you have this Big Ten women's tournament. This is a marquee event right here in the Twin Cities, Target Center, downtown Minneapolis, and they are gone after one day. So now fans going in are going to have to cheer for the likes of Indiana, Ohio State, Michigan, Iowa, Maryland, dare I say it, Wisconsin. The Gophers are gone. you got to pick another team to root for. So it's been a dinky town debacle for men's and women's hoops. And we'll see, you know, what kind of patience the Gophers have with Mark Coyle. Now, a lot of us are saying Lindsay's had enough time to prove herself that she's in over her skis as a head coach. But we just did talk to Pam Borton, who took the Gophers to the Final Four when Lindsay was the point guard. Pam Borton still believes that the future is bright for Lindsay Whalen in Minnesota. But I would say it has to turn around next season, no doubt about it. Okay, let's talk about the Wild Wally. What's going on there? Uh, Wild have been on a little bit of a roll. Eric and I were out covering the game against the Islanders on Tuesday night, which they won in a shootout. They now have a seven-game point streak, so in other words, they have picked up at least one point in seven straight games. Um, they trailed Dallas by just three points in the Central Division. Tonight they are in Vancouver uh, to play against the Canucks. The Wild, as I mentioned, though, they won by a score of 2-1, to one, and one of those was a shootout goal. So they have not been scoring a lot lately, but they've been getting some really good goaltending from both Philippe Gustafson and Marc-Andre Fleury. Um, hopefully they can continue this so that they will uh, solidify their playoff chances, but there's still a long ways to go. You still have about you know, six weeks left in the regular season, and it's tightly compacted, the uh, Central Division. is one other NHL-slash-hockey note, um, Lou Nanny the former Gopher and, of course, former Minnesota North Star, and you still hear him during the state tournaments on television and so on. Last night he was inducted into the Minnesota Sports Hall of Fame. Well-deserved, obviously. I mean, he's a legend. <laughs> Lou Nanny's a living legend, and we love oh. having him on. We have him on our radio show often. So great news yeah. for Lou, and I know he was very happy to get the honor. He's, he's one of my favorites. Hey, let's talk about the Vikings, Eric Nelson. Uh, I, you know that I'm not good on this, so I hear that there's this combine in Indianapolis this week. Uh, oh, Kathy, first, what clean. is that? What, just come clean. I know as soon as you're leaving the airwaves at NPR, you're <laughs> going to go watch the NFL Network's extensive <laughs> coverage of the scouting combine. Yeah, basically, uh, every year in downtown Indianapolis at Lucas Oil Stadium, the home of the Colts, uh, all these college prospects 
gather and they are poked and prodded and evaluated and tested and uh, they, they get psychoanalysis from NFL scouts and coaches. It's ridiculous. It's paralysis by analysis. I call it the NFL Olympics. They are more concerned about your time in the 40 yard dash or how you maneuver around cones in a drill or vertical jumping, or they have one drill where you, how many times can you bench press 225 pounds? This is all great. But can the guys play football? And a lot of times, a guy's stock will rise at the combine based on what he did in Indianapolis, even though you already know what he did on Saturdays at the collegiate level. So it's really bizarre. But there is some good news that came out of the combine, Kathy, for the Vikings. Uh, The NFL Players Association gave out free agency report cards for all 32 teams. And your purple are number one. Now, it's not quite like winning the Super Bowl, but it is a positive because these are player-based <laughs> rankings. The feedback came from the players, and the categories are how their families are treated, food service and nutrition, the weight room, your strength coaches, your training room, your training staff, your locker room, team travel. So the Vikings get high marks. And on the flip side, Jacksonville had a rodent problem in their locker room and laundry areas, and apparently the families aren't treated very well. They don't even have a daycare for the Jacksonville Jaguar uh, families, wives and girlfriends and parents. <laughs> See, the things you learn, the things you learn here on the program. Okay, so before we go here, Mr. Langfellow, I want to th- feel like uh, there's warmer weather coming, so let's talk about spring training in the Twins. <laughs> well, uh, Twins are playing today. They're playing Tampa Bay today in Grapefruit League action. That's in Florida, of course. Twins are two and three so far. I think that the when, when folks are watching uh, preseason baseball, Grapefruit League baseball, and the Cactus League out in Arizona, everybody's, yep. their eyes are on the pitch clock because of all the rules changes this year. Pitch clock is the big deal. So you have to throw the ball. You have to pitch the ball within 15 seconds or it's an automatic ball. The batter has to be in the batter's box ready to go with eight seconds to go or it's an automatic ball. I mean, there's all kinds of things, but, but that's the new thing. Yeah. All right. Talk to you guys later next week. Thanks. Wally Langfellow, Eric Nelson. They are our sports guys. And that's it for us on the program this week. Our senior producer is Melissa Townsend. Our producers are Ellen Finn, Gretchen Brown, Britt Amit, and Alana Elder. Our technical director, oh my gosh, it was Randy Johnson today, RJ. Our theme music was composed by Minnesota-based musicians Abby Wolf, Joe Horton. Thank you for listening to Minnesota Now, right here on MPR News. Support for Minnesota Now comes from True Stone Financial, a full-service credit union working to improve the financial well-being of its neighbors since 1939. Serving individuals and businesses at 23 locations and online at truestone.org. Equal housing opportunity insured by NCUA. Right now in the Twin Cities, let me call this up, cloudy skies, 23 degrees. We're going to get to about 30 for a high today. South winds at 5 miles an hour. Not a bad day at all. Cloudy skies overnight with a low of 20. Mid-30s for a high tomorrow. How about the weekend? I know you want to know about that. Saturday, sunshine with a high of 35. Sunday, upper 30s, close to 40. But, there's always a but with that. There's a 50% chance of rain and snow developing on Sunday afternoon. Rain and snow, a slush storm there on Sunday evening. Not much in the way of accumulation, just maybe light snow accumulations on Sunday. Monday, a chance of rain and snow in the morning, and then rain on Monday afternoon. It's 1 o'clock.